Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand in your life that made an impact on you? You know, probably Levi's. My uncle worked for Levi's. So I had the best Levi's swag of <laughs> Any kid. It's important as a kid. You know? So I had this binder, and it was the 501 pocket and patch. And I brought that into school, and, you know, I, I just want to say that I was pretty cool on that day and every day, and no one could get it. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Jennifer Olson, the chief marketing officer of Untucket. You might know Untucket from their TV ads. They make shirts that are, you guessed it, designed to be not tucked in. This is a really successful new company with about $200 million in sales, 80-plus stores, and they just launched in London. Jenny has worked on big brands like Crate & Barrel, Walt Disney, and Pepsi. And she's also worked on really innovative startups like Stitch Fix, True, and Olivella. She's even worked in politics. We are going to get into all of that and more. Here's my conversation with Jennifer Olson. So, Jennifer... Jenny, yes. welcome to the CMO Podcast. Thank you. And I want to ask you directly, are you wearing today an Untucket shirt? I'm not wearing an Untucket shirt, but I am wearing an Untucket blazer. Okay. Yes. So we it's do- quite becoming. Why, thank you very much. Um, we actually do a pretty small assortment for women. So it's not nearly as large as our men's business, but it's still a pretty massive size business. And um, we do great shirting. We do amazing shirt dresses and uh, the occasional blazer. And so this is, I think, fall of uh, 2018, perhaps. Okay. Um, but it's one of my Vintage. favorite, <laughs> very much, but it's one of my favorite pieces in my wardrobe. So. Yeah. So when you're not wearing Untucket, what are some of your favorite fashion brands? Sure. I, I tend to shop a lot of the contemporary brands. So I'm a big fan of uh, Frame for Denim. Um, most of my, so my, my feet run cold. I might be oversharing at this point, but um, my feet run cold. Um, so I run, I wear a lot of Aquitalia boots uh, in the, um, in the wintertime. Um, 
And then uh, Veronica Beard, love, love, love her blazers, very much a staple when I'm not wearing my untucked blazer, of course. But um, yeah, so so very much love shopping, love the contemporary space. I'm actually shopping a lot with Rent the Runway these days, yeah. too, which I'm finding that's changed a lot of my shopping behaviors. And I think it's something that we as marketers Are you a subscription really person? Like, I am yeah. a subscription person. So is my daughter. Person. Yeah, yeah. She's enjoying it as well. Oh, yeah. It's, that's all she does. Yeah. When we travel to visit her, she's just at the packages coming in and out. She yeah. wears it for everything. Yeah. No, it's, it's really tremendous. And I've found a lot of great um, discovery brands that way. A lot of things I wouldn't have tried normally. Um, but then I, uh, I order them. They come. I wear them a few times. I fall in love. And I end up keeping them quite often. So yeah. it's a lot of fun. So your feet run cold. Is there anything <laughs> else about you that we would not be able to find online or that I haven't found in my sleuthing? You know, um, I, I tend to be a bit of an open uh, book. I'll be, I'll be curious to hear what you found in your sleuthing. Um, you probably don't know that I was raised by a single dad. That's, that probably doesn't come up in your research. So, um, and it's something I talk about a lot um, when I talk about my career path and my confidence and the risks I've taken. Um, because so much of that, I think, has come from having, you know, one of the best girl dads there is. Um, so that's probably something you haven't. Do you have found. siblings? Very, I do. I have a brother. He's a couple years younger. He also he had a great boy dad. So, what was your dad's career? Um, my dad actually worked. So we grew up in San Francisco. He worked for Transamerica. Sure. Most of uh, his career, so thirty plus years at the same job, and probably not surprising, he worked in marketing. Did a lot of sports marketing. Did a lot of PR, which is where I started my career. Did a lot of um, sponsorships. Um, so including the '84 Olympics, Transamerica was a sponsor. So yeah. So I, I think. A lot of the person I am, and and he had a pretty profound and continues to have a really profound influence on the person I've become and the leader I've become. So I want to, before we get too far into this podcast, you have maybe the most interesting <laughs> career path yet on the CMO podcast. And I want to run through the brands that you have touched okay. or worked on in your career since you graduated from Colgate and Kellogg. Great. And I want you, it's going to be tough. It's a brain brain. Okay. I'm Stimulant ready. for early ready. in the day. So I want you to give me a quick phrase, not even a sentence, on what the company is about, mm -hmm. and then a quick phrase on what your experience was there. Wow. So you ready for this? It's going to be kind okay. of a lightning round. Okay. I'm going to. I'm going to try. It is early, but I'm going to. I'm going to give okay. it my best effort. So we're going to start with untuck it. Yes. Uh, shirts designed to be worn untucked, and the larger purpose is helping guys look sharp even at their most casual. And your experience there? Tremendous. High growth. Olivella. Olivella is about uh, intersection of retail and philanthropy. So they have invented and we started a new model where every product you buy, um, it, there is a, uh, a charitable impact. And I think one of the more interesting things we did there was we created a new dynamic where um, we actually associated like days of schooling with a specific product. So you buy this purse, you are sending a young girl to school for 10 days in a developing company. So you make a it country. really real. Absolutely. Yeah. Versus just a percentage or, or a dollar. And your experience there? So I was um, interim CMO. It was tremendous. Um, and it was just, for me, it was very much the intersection between sort of my uh, passion and, and my love of marketing. True. 
True. Wow. So that was also an interim CMO gig, which was tremendous. And a lot of their work has been women generally don't wear the right size bra. So they really innovated in terms of, um, you know, a great quiz that got women into the right size bra. So, so that was really about personalization and customization and ultimately about confidence and empowerment. Um, because when you can get some of those things right, not unlike Untuck It, you know, when you can get some of these things really right, you can go into the world in a very different, more confident way. My observations as a husband and a man is I don't want to, there are so many issues to work through <laughs> in bra shopping. I won't go yeah, there though. Yeah, yeah. So Yahoo. Ah, uh, gosh, that, that was an interesting time. So I came in there right when um, Marissa was sort of at her peak. Yeah. So I think there was Marissa, a was lot of Marissa Meyer. Yeah. yeah. So I think there was a lot of belief in possibility. I think what really sticks with me... I, except for Pepsi and, and maybe even Untucket, I don't know that I've ever worked with a smarter group of people. Um, so that wasn't necessarily the challenge. Obviously, that story has been mm-hmm. <laughs> written. Um, but I think what was what was interesting was just I met, you know, I was only there for a year. But some of the people that I met with, met there and worked with there are still really close friends because it was, it was sort of experience. baptism by fire. Um, and so I think it was just, um, I think there was some some frustration. I think that was a, a tough time for a lot of people, especially Marissa. But, um, you know, there was also a lot of possibility. And it's, it's fun that Yahoo is still around. I didn't know that would still be the case, but I, I hear they're doing a whole big new brand campaign. We'll see where that goes. I was on the AOL board at that time. Ah, so it was just, wow. so we were watching each other and we ended up both going to the same company. Yeah. Right? Interesting. But, yeah. Very interesting. So Stitch Fix. That is a genius idea. So I think when you think Stitch Fix, that's a data science play. So, um, I think what Katrina Lake invented there. So I had a lot of history in, um, personal styling. So when I was at Piper Lime, so it was a gap for a decade, worked with Rachel Zoe really closely. And so had great love and affection for personal styling and very much everyone wanted Rachel to be their own personal stylist. So I think what Katrina invented there was incredible. Um, very much of a, a just a tremendous play on personalization and, uh, you know, in the same way, like Olivella. So for our listeners who may not know what the business model is, sure, just say a word sure. about that. Great question. Um, so, so what Stitch Fix does is they, you know, you fill out a quiz and it's it's truly one-to-one styling. Um, powered, as I said, largely by data science. But then they also have a fleet. Um, I have no idea how many personal stylists they have now, but um, a ton of women and I'm sure men who are adding their art and their eye to the recommendations that the uh, algorithm surfaces. And your experience there was? Brief. Brief. (laughs) So I I think it's a really, you know, um, I loved your conversation with Scott Galloway about how different CMO gigs are from place to place to place. And I think it just, you know, quite honestly, it wasn't the right fit. Uh, As I said, it was very much of a data science play uh, versus a brand play. Um, And so the things I brought to the table, just it 
at, at least at the time, weren't the things mm-hmm. that were most needed and valued. So, you know, it was a it was a pretty quick um, tenure for me, um, but it was instructive and um, a lot of props to what that team built and the genius behind the original concept. Mm-hmm. You spent a lot of time at Gap and worked on almost all their brands, right? Well, really just two. Just two. So I started at Banana Republic in the digital space. So I actually started in digital in 1999 and went over to Gap um, and joined Banana Republic on the digital side in 2001. Ended up uh, running that team um, and then got probably the best, one of the best opportunities I've had in my career, which was the chance to invent an entirely new brand. So. The company saw that there was an opportunity to sell shoes online. It was pretty much the only category we weren't selling. And you have to go sort of onto the Wayback Machine and understand that for a while, people weren't sure you could sell shoes online. And then Zappos came in. Yeah. So this was pre-Zappos? This was- About the same time? Mm Post-Zappos. And so Toby Lank, who was the head of the division and just this tremendous visionary, you know, saw that, okay, Zappos is doing this thing well. He saw a future where we could connect the shopping carts for all of the Gap brands and actually sell people shoes more readily um, just because we had so many people bought into the core brands. So he, um, so I worked with him on the original business plan he convinced the board that we should invent a new brand, and that is what became Piper Lime. Wow. So you worked at, you know, Pepsi. You started your career in politics. Yeah. You know, you uh, you were at Edelman and Fleischman Hillard. <laughs> so you've really seen marketing from so many different yeah. angles. So talk about the politics a bit. You worked coming out of school. Yes. As an undergraduate, right? Yeah. So and you worked to- for a Democrat. And a Republican. Ah, I wasn't sure if you were going to bring that up. I sure did. Is that a good so, idea? You know, at the at the time, um, there wasn't the same polarization that there is now. So I think it wasn't that unusual. So I, you know, went to Colgate University in central New York. I majored liberal arts college, majored in poli-sci, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So I took a very literal <laughs> step. And I was like, politics, this, this must be it. So did a couple of congressional internships uh, for Pete Wilson, for Joe Kennedy, father of the Joe Kennedy we're hearing from a lot. So that Joe Kennedy would come into the office as a little boy, which is, which is really fun to see now. But, um, you know, for me, I had and continue to have a very deep interest in politics um, and in political theory. And so I thought it made a lot of sense. I think when you actually experience the sausage being made, um, it, it wasn't the right fit for me. And I, I very much coach people, you know, be at that intersection of do what you love, what you're good at and what you can make money doing. And uh, though I loved the sort of the politics in theory, I didn't love it in practice. And I wasn't as good at it as I ultimately found I was when it came to consumer marketing. Mm. What was your biggest surprise when you started in politics? You, I mean, you discovered it wasn't right for you. Yeah, I, I think just the, you know, again, it's... it's um, a lot of the stories that are very much in the news now, the influence of money, 
on politics, I think, was surprising to me. You know, keep in mind, I graduated 91 from college. And um, so I was I was surprised to see the way things actually got done versus, you know, everything we learned from, um, you know, uh, on, on TV and in the books about how things actually got done. And it was it was discouraging. Um, I'm still, you know, active. It's a, it's a great interest of mine. But I, I did decided that it was not going, though it was my passion it shouldn't necessarily be my vocation. Right. Got it. So I look at these experiences. I mean, it's very rich. You work with some of the most amazing startups and mature companies, and yeah. we'll talk about that in a little while. But is there one or two experiences from that career path we danced through, and we didn't hit everything, uh, but is there any experience from that career that is most defining for you? Yeah, I, I think it was, um, so I was at Edelman in New York. So um, That was after business school? Before business, Before business school, school. Okay. sat outside Richard Edelman's oh. office, which was tremendous. I mean, just a tr- wonderful visionary and a, a really good person as yeah, well. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. One so, of my favorites. Yeah. So I was working in public affairs on the Bacardi account. And so the work I was doing was in the realm of, you know, issues, work, crisis communication. And to totally date myself, they were launching Bacardi Limon down the hall. And they were doing just wonderful consumer work with, um, you know, fashion designers and all these personalities. And I just looked at that and I said, well, wait a second, that's where I want to be. So I went to Richard and talked about, you know, do I make this, this shift into consumer marketing and consumer PR? And he very much counseled me and frankly opened the door for me to go back to business school and get an MBA and study consumer marketing broadly. So I would say that was a hugely defining uh, career experience. The other one I would say is working for Pets.com. I was the sixth employee. I don't oh know my. if you remember the, the sock course. puppet yeah. back in the day. Super the, Bowl ad, the whole bit. The tremendous ascendancy followed by a very dramatic decline. Yeah, it was the poster child of the dot-com Very much, bubble. you know. And and it's funny because I'm a big supporter and a customer at Chewy.com mm. nowadays. It's the same thing. You know, we were just way too early. The, con- the customer wasn't there. But it's funny because... That was the experience working at Pets.com made me realize my love of digital, my love of retail, and my love for working on new and emerging brands. So while that was not a successful company, it just opened my eyes to a ton of things that have been very much big threads within my career. So what was your biggest learning at Pets.com? Um, you know, I think what I, what I really appreciate and I'm seeing a lot with Untucket now is on the one hand, you need to solve a problem, but the brands that really get big fast are the brands that are doing something that is very much propelled by a cultural shift. So in the case of pets.com, the consumer wasn't there. We wanted people to buy pet food on the internet in the way they are now. But in 2000, you know, 1999, frankly, it was when I was there, they weren't there. So if you can- It wasn't as easy either. Yeah. Yeah. And if you can invent something that's smart and fills a need at the exact time in culture when it's most relevant and you can get that tailwind, that's when you can really have and enjoy explosive growth. 
We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. So you talked about Richard being a mentor, Richard Edelman. Anyone else, you talk about your father. Yeah. Anyone else in your career that stands out yeah. as, as helping accelerate your development as Honestly, a leader, as a person? Yeah, the, the list is long. I think I think all of us are standing on the shoulders of a lot of people who have taught us different things. So my first boss at uh, Fleischman Hiller, a guy named Don Massey, I was faxing and copying. That, that was my job. But he was the guy who always gave me broad perspective and context and taught me and made sure that even though my job and the thing I was doing was an administrative task, typically, he helped me understand why it was important. So that's very much, you know, as Explain a leader, the why. Mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, there's a woman named Debbie Podbereski at Gap, who was my um, manager for many years. She just made me, um, so there was some tough love from her. She made me very aware and more self-aware as a leader, just made me better. Um, Kathy Baudouin at Piper Lime just opened tremendous doors for me, let me invent Piper Lime and gave me a ton of confidence. Marta Kaye at Crate and Barrel was one of the most visionary merchants and leaders. And and I would say, too, now at Untuck It, um, have a tremendous partnership with the two founders. Um, and they um, they are continuing to just give me new opportunities. And we, we're like a family at this point. When I look at your career arc, you sort of have gravitated more towards startups. Yeah. You work both sides of it. Why? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think I am attracted to entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial energy. I am not an entrepreneur myself, but I'm more of a fast follower. So if I have a real strength, it's an ability to come in when things are really murky and find a path. Um, And so I think I just get a tremendous amount of satisfaction of doing that and a tremendous amount of inspiration from entrepreneurs. Um, And I just I love to get things done. And I've found it's often easier in smaller companies. That said, again, the Piper Lime experience of doing something new, that sort of entrepreneurship, doing something new within a big, well-resourced company was a lot of fun too. But I really enjoy and get a lot of satisfaction of building new things. So you talk about this um you know, special strength you have in coming into murkiness or ambiguity yeah. and finding a way. Is there anything else that you feel is your, I know this is a tough question for people to answer. I hate it when I'm asked this, <laughs> but what your special gift is as a leader and then something you're working on. Gosh, there's a lot I'm working on. Um, I think um, I have a great love and belief in brand positioning exercises. 
And I think that's work I've been able to do. Honestly, I was able to do it at Crate and Barrel. Um, came in there. So when you use the word positioning, yeah. you mean the purpose or the framework or the benefit or what? I think, what do you think um, about positioning? So the way I start with it is thinking about just having a framework of positioning to articulate what is the larger brand purpose? So, you know, it, it's interesting. So when I came into Crate, I mean, one of the greatest brands of all time, just just love, love, love it. The founder, Gordon Siegel, had sold the company. So he wasn't involved. Um, Barbara Turf, who was just was a, a tremendous woman and a great merchant, she was the CEO. So for a long time at that company, mom and dad made a lot of decisions. So when they were no longer there in the same capacity, one of the things I realized when I first came in was we needed to understand and articulate and bring everyone on the same page with what made this brand great. And, and really, um, you know, Marta Kaya and I worked on an aesthetic, like a, a product filter um, that obviously land, uh, laddered up to the brand purpose. So for Crate and Barrel, um, you know, I love brands and, and positionings where there's some dynamic tension. And that was always this, this clean and warm. And they were always able to do clean design in a way that was warm, whereas clean design can, can go to a very cold place. Mm-hmm. But that was part of their magic. But the larger brand purpose was all about entertaining and bringing, you know, people together. And, and back to the point about, um, you know, solving a problem at the right time and culture, you know, Gordon Siegel will tell the story about when he and Carol, you know, honeymoon, they found these great European housewares that weren't available. They brought them back, you know, stacked them on, you know, crates and barrels and offered them at a sharp price point. That was a lot of the magic but what really propelled them was Julia Child. So at this exact time, they discovered this thing that was a need. Julia Child was popularizing cooking and entertaining. And the larger purpose for Crate and Merrill is about bringing friends and family together, which is different from CB2, which is more about self-expression. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, it's, it's so interesting. Do you have Crate and Barrel in your home now to this day? So much. So much in yeah. fact, um, we have a fair I, amount as well. Yeah, uh, it's really good quality stuff, yeah. um, and uh, it's it's very much still one of my go to brands as a CB two. Okay, I want to now shift to your current role. Yeah, and you are the CMO at Untuck It. You've been there two plus years. You've just launched in London. You're a fast growing brand. I think north of two hundred million. I don't know if we can talk about Indeed. that. So I want you to describe the company and may, maybe more so the culture yeah. to someone who is not aware of your brand. Yes. Okay. I mean, you probably have high brand awareness is my guess. We have, we have solid brand awareness. Um, but, but not we, everyone knows about not it. Not everyone. So explain so, it to someone who does not know about the company or the culture. Sure. So Chris Riccobono, uh, one of the founders, years ago, I think 2010, was on a vacation, um, packed a bunch of shirts, and found himself always wearing the same shirt um, because he found I do that too. That's a good insight, right? It found that only one of his shirts looked good untucked, so it was really hard to find a great shirt that looked good untucked. So he set about to, 
you know, solve that. Brought in um, Aaron Sinandras, who is his um, Columbia Business School uh, colleague. And the two of them went about, you know, creating this brand. And I think they founded it. Uh, again, I think part of the success is just about simplicity. Shirts designed to be worn untucked. So it's a very simple um, tagline that importantly really lends well to TV, podcasts, not just digital. So I think sure. that was a very important move. And one of the reasons we have such high awareness is they were never bound just by, you know, Facebook and and Google, which are obviously powerful elements of our mix. But when you can get out there and make TV work, it's still one of the most powerful things you can do. So they just did um, tremendous work creating this brand, but also, you know, in the retail world, the most important thing is the product. And it's funny, when I first got the call, I talked to, about the job. I talked to a few friends and because I, I didn't intuitively understand it. So did they reach out to you or a headhunter? They reached out, they reach to, out me to me through, through a headhunter. And um, I was like, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I didn't fully understand it. I was aware but I ended up talking to some guy friends who were not enthusiastic about anything but sports and untuck it. And some of these friends of mine would just talk about the product. And, you know, I talked to friends who have like 25 or 30 untuck it shirts. And so it wow. really forced me as a marketer to say, okay, there's something really special happening here that you, you need to understand. So. I agreed to come on, and one of the first things, though, I insisted we do is consumer research. And I love how you talk so much about brand purpose, because what we found very quickly was, again, um, what was propelling us wasn't just that these guys did something really smart that was simple to articulate, but they did it at the exact right time in culture where, you know... I think faster than any of us imagined, workplace dressing went from business casual, which was like, you got your button downs, you got your khakis, to true casual. And a lot of people just didn't know how to make that work. And back to the idea of a dynamic tension, looking polished in a casual world isn't always easy to pull off. So what these guys created was a great solution, not just not just a shirt designed to be worn untucked, but um, a real solution for guys who wanted to look professional and polished in a casual work environment. And that is, in fact, you know, the larger purpose is about helping guys look sharp, even at their most casual and ultimately giving confidence. That's pretty rich. Yeah. How do you sustain? You started with a pretty simple benefit. They personalize the brand, right? The founders are in the advertising. Yes, yes. How do you sustain the competitive advantage yeah. in the crazy market you're in? Yeah, I, I think it's always about looking at what's out there and also mining. You know, I have a tremendous research partner. So we've done a lot of really terrific research at the heart of sort of what's culturally relevant. So I think, you know, the challenge is always threading that needle. We have, if we are not shirts designed to be worn untucked and we become just another lifestyle brand, 
we've missed the mark and we no longer have the same differentiation. But there are a lot of great, super relevant messages that we can layer on to that shirt's designed to be worn untucked. So one of the things when you talk to consumers, a lot of guys would tell us like, you know, I'm, I'm in your store and I'm seeing your imagery and it doesn't look like me. And then we talked to a lot of guys who, you know, were bigger guys, shorter guys, um, taller guys. And they all told us this was a brand for them. But then we talked to non-adopters. You know, the bigger guys would say, well, it's a brand for smaller guys. Smaller guys would say it's a brand for bigger guys. So I think, you know, we did a campaign that continues and has been really important called Everybody Welcome. And we actually shot regular guys. Um, and we have this uh, this device that we run in most all of our catalogs. And it's a lineup. It's guys. It's Chris, our founder. It's Drew Brees, who's actually an investor in the brand. It's big guys. It's small guys. And what they have in common is they all look great in untucked shirts. And we have about 50 plus fit combinations because we have, you know, small, medium, large, extra large. But then we also have, you know, slim fit, regular fit. And this fit element is a really important dimension of the brand. And it's a very personalized experience. So, you know, more to come, but I think you'll see us do more around, um, we've got 85 stores now. Um, So you'll see us do more around that fit experience in store. Um, You'll see us marketing other categories as well. We have an insane polos business. Um, Just because that purpose of helping guys look sharp, even at their most casual, allows us to sell other categories. And we have so much trust and engagement that we're able to, you know, convince guys that they should try it. and, And almost always, they really find the product to be great. Well, Drew Brees is like the ultimate yeah. Guy's guy. Everyone yeah. loves him on so many levels. Is he, he's an investor. Is he active in the brand? He is. So that's a great story. He has and good ideas. He has, he has good ideas, but um, I think his first best idea. So, so both he and Wayne Gretzky um, were not, I'd love to take credit for bringing Drew Brees into the brand. That was Drew Brees' doing. So Drew actually fell in love with the shirts reached out to Chris, met Chris at a Super Bowl and came in as an investor. So it's a really Good interesting, yeah, it's a really interesting model, right? Because So what do you love about the brand? The fit, the style, everything? The fit, the style, the story. you mm-hmm. know. I, I think, uh, again, like a lot of guys, it's just became one of his go-tos. So I think, you know, as we all grapple with what is what do influencers look like? And, you know, as we, you know. Everybody welcome, right? Yeah. And and I think, too, you know, for Drew, he's got skin in the game. Right. So when we ask him to post about us in social media, he's there. So one of the things um, I don't know if you remember uh, a year ago, there was a very famous missed pass interference call. Oh, God. Yeah. And we saw it as an opportunity for for the brand and for Drew to comment about it. So we actually shot an ad. Uh, We're not running it as much now just because we're we're, uh, kind of far from that moment in culture. But it's a series of guys where we show sort of 
transformations from wearing a regular shirt, which was never meant to be worn untucked, and then something flashes in front of them, like in The Devil Wears Prada with the, with the buses, and then they're instantly transformed. And in the last scenario, it's a guy and a girl walking together, and the guy, I mean, the shirt is like a, like a pirate shirt, and someone walks in front of uh, the guy and the girl. The guy's transformed. He's wearing an untucked shirt. Cut to Drew Brees, who says, at least someone made the right call. <laughs> and yeah. we launched that yeah. right after that. And it just that. blew. Yeah, yeah. It, it blew up. And and for Drew, you know, we very much partnered with him. He hadn't commented about it. I mean, he's just such a stand-up guy. But this was a way for him to have a little fun with it. And for the, you know, we, I think overnight we got, you know, millions and millions of Saints fans um, are now big Untucket fans after that ad. So it was a really fun moment and a great way to partner with Drew. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. You were the CMO at Crate and Barrel at Stitch Fix before this. How is this job different? How do you spend your time here versus those other two brands? Things are changing so rapidly in marketing that I don't know that any CMO looks back on a job they had eight years ago and can find, you know, there's certain patterns. Sure, you spend time on advertising and social media and things like that. But, you know, I spend a ton of my time in the digital space. It's a great passion of mine. So that's a lot of fun. Um spend a ton of time managing the team. I would say that's probably consistent. Um, I think it's, 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 I don't know, it's a hard question because it's similar and also different. I would say, it's funny, the culture of Crate and Barrel and the culture of Untuck It are very similar, um, very familial, Mm-hmm. And very much like you're working for a family-owned company, whereas a lot of other places I've worked, they're more true startup culture. And I think if you could, that is that is lightning in a bottle. If you can create a culture, as the guys at Untucket have done, that is at once, you know, warm and kind, but you're driving innovation at a very fast pace. Um, there's something really remarkable. So how much time do you spend with the founders? Um, a lot. lot. I would say, you know, Chris actually works from Chicago. You should meet him. Um, when, excuse me, Aaron works from Chicago. Chris is, Chris is here. Um, in New York. In New York, I would say on any given day, depending upon our travel schedules, um, we're together, the three of us and their other members of the leadership team, a lot. Um, and we're just sort of fighting the good fight. And we're not fighting with each other, but we're just like figuring it out. And I think... Do you sit together? 
Is it an we, open? We sit in an open workspace. So we are all, we all sit together, which is, um, I have complicated thoughts about the open workspace. I do too. We can get into that <laughs> later if we have time. It's good and bad, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so what do you, in this two and a half years or so, what are you most proud of at your time at Untucket? I think the team we've built, um, I think there is, you know, with with such rapid acceleration, I think, you know. We're only the, 10 years old, right, the company? Uh, less than 10 less years, than 10 yeah. Years. But um, but we've gone from $80 million a couple of years ago to north of $200 million uh, now. So, so even really in these last two years, it's been especially explosive. So. I think the great thing is we were able to bring in new talent into the team, more senior leaders, but we've had almost no attrition. So some of yeah, it's really special. And again, it's a very special place. And then, you know, we appreciate that. And not every brand is growing like crazy in the retail space. So I think when you have a strong, you know, culture combined with tremendous growth, um, that's what we also had in the early days of Piper Lime. And you just, you know, as someone who's been through sort of it all, you're really grateful because you know it doesn't always look like that. If there's one thing you could attribute at the rapid growth in a tough retail environment. What is it? Is it the product? If it's or one thing, else? I think it's the two things, if I may. I think it's a really smart, fulfilling a need at the exact right moment in culture when everything shifted into casual so quickly and people weren't necessarily always clear on how do you look polished in a rapidly casualizing world. Why did it go so rapid, do you think? I think TV has helped a lot. You know, I think as much as we as marketers are curious about what's the next big thing and I, you know, we spend, you know, a lot of money on on digital, of course, on radio, on podcasts. There's nothing like TV for telling your stories. And then when you can combine that with, you know, direct response vehicles and, and we frankly, you know, we get a direct response out of TV uh, again because the proposition is just so simple and there's been such a need. But we've been able to, you know, our catalogs, our Facebook ads. They have the benefit of just, you know, uh, TV doing a lot of heavy lifting around awareness. So we're not pitching into a void the way a lot of other, you know, smaller brands or disruptor brands, that Facebook ad is doing all the heavy lifting. For us, people know about it. And so it's much further down on the funnel, typically. Sure. Is there a ritual, a practice, a principle that the founders live by that sets the culture that you that you describe, which sounds so amazing? Yeah, I, I think we, we actually did the work of articulating our values. Honestly, the first one is be kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds sort of trite, but it's, um, it's really important. And we all very much hold ourselves and others to that. It's a simple thing. Um, also, you know, be direct. So we have a lot of very direct conversations, but they're also kind. Um, And it's amazing those things, um, how much you can get done if you just, you know, hopefully you don't have to remind yourself to be kind, but um, it's, it's a really special thing. And again, they, they run the company very much like a 
family-owned company where everyone is valued. Um, and again, it's it's not dissimilar from the culture at Crate and Barrel, which was which was very much the same way. I wrote a book a couple of years ago about mature brands and startups yeah. and how they can help each other. You've worked on both sides. I yeah. should have interviewed you for the book. <laughs> but if you could share with our listeners today, what's the biggest lesson you think startups can teach mature brands and vice versa? What can mature brands teach startups? Sure. If you had to bring it down to one lesson for each from your rich experience on both sides <laughs> of that table. I think taking risks is the biggest thing that startups can teach mature brands. You know, again, I was at Gap for a decade. I had the benefit of always being on the online side. But I think... A lot of folks were just afraid to take risks. And if you're not taking risk, if you're not pushing the brand forward, um, then you then you aren't growing, you aren't innovating in the right way. So figuring out how you can infuse that risk-taking bias into more mature brands, I think is a huge opportunity. Conversely, I think startups need to have an opportunity to learn from larger brands about laying a solid foundation, right? So a lot of, so I have a lot of side hustles. So I advise, mm -hmm. I sit on a board of a um, clean fragrance company called Fleur. And a lot of the work we do is that brand purpose work. And what I, I always try to um, share is that if you can get to clarity on your positioning and your purpose, everything becomes easier, right? Because especially in this current environment, so many things come at you, right. right? And if those things aren't aligned with your purpose, it's very easy to say no. And that, you know, especially when you're in a startup in, uh, environment and there's so much you need to do, the things you say no to, it's every bit as important as the things you say yes to. Yeah. Well, you could have written my book for me. Uh, those are the two big lessons, honestly. Uh, and they're simple, but, you know, tough to do day in and day out. Well, clearly you're going to write a sequel and I'd be happy <laughs> to be part of that. Excellent. So what's your favorite side hustle? I love being on the board of Fleur. Mm -hmm. um, they have just a tremendous mission around transparency. And, um, you know, they're, they're a clean fragrance brand. We've actually purchased a contract manufacturer that's able to, you know, produce clean fragrance uh, product and deodorants and things like that. And it's just, again. Um, How many categories is Flora in now? So quite a few, you know, so the core is all about, you know, fragrance and scent, but they've expanded into, you know, body wash, um, uh, candles, the Fleur. I, I need to get you a Fleur candle. They're, they're really the best. So, yeah, so that's a lot of fun. And then I'm also an advisor to a um, VC that is funding um, seed companies, consumer companies that are seed stage that are founded by women or gender diverse teams. So that's that's a lot of fun. What's the name of the company? Victress Capital. They're based out of Boston. So I do work with a young woman. Uh, the company is H Ventures. Okay. It's a young woman starting a fund, primarily investing in consumer brands ah. that are uh, coincident. I mean, we, we, we look for companies that are interesting, have a purpose. Yeah. And, mo and everything we've invested in so far as a woman founder. I think there's just so much opportunity um, for- Well, hardly any funds are run by women. 100%. It's awful. 100%. And, and then, you know, there's so many ideas that are great ideas that the typical, you know, VC and, and you know, 
I have a lot of friends um, who are venture capitalists and I, and I love them dearly. Um, but there's a very specific model and a very specific um, entrepreneur that they tend to fund. And so there's some tremendous businesses out there that just aren't getting funded because they don't sit within the prescribed model. So I just think there's a lot of opportunity. And it's one of the things that's most, you know, working with Victress, working with female founders. Um, I'm also an advisor to Modsi. Shauna Tellerman there is mm -hmm. just one of the leaders I most admire. So that is just personally really satisfying. And it's fun to see the growth, especially at a company like Modsi right now. You have a cool life. I do. I'm very, uh, very fortunate yeah. and very grateful. Well, you make it, right? You I make choices to. about where you spend your time and who you spend your time with. Yeah. And what, you, what I, you're passionate about. Yeah. I work hard and I'm lucky. And I think I've, um, again, you know, I, I had a bias toward taking risks and doing new things. And I think it's not always served me well, but by and large, it, it has. And I've gotten to do some really cool things. I have to ask this. What's the biggest flop in your career? I think probably Stitch Fix. Um, I think it's a tremendous business, um, but I just wasn't the right fit. And again, it goes back to your conversation with Scott Galloway about how different CMO jobs were or are. And I think I just wasn't, you know, it wasn't the right product market fit, if you will. Um, they are very much driven, you know, it's a data science play. And so I think a lot of my work, I work in a lot of deeply visual categories. Brand purpose is really important to me. And that wasn't, at least at the time, the right fit for that stage of the company, even though it's a, a tremendously successful company and a great idea. What's our biggest opportunity in the industry on brand purpose? Oh, gosh, that that is a terrific, um, a terrific question. I think it's, I think more brands need to have a purpose. I think um, having a mission, like that is what consumers are demanding, you know? And so this place that I love where brand meets often social impact, um, I think more brands should be there. Um, and if you look at the success of something like Olivella, which is really reinventing the model and creating a new model around retail and philanthropy, people are eating that up. And they have had a tremendous ride raising money and uh, getting people to buy in. And I think it's because it sits at that intersection of you know, social impact and retail. And it's such a clear purpose. And I find a lot of brands, and I know this is, you know, your passion and I'm right there with you. A lot of brands just, just don't have a clear purpose. All right. I want to end this. I don't want to end this, but I'm going to end this great conversation with the lightning round. So what pe pets do you have at home now? I have a 16 year old Cocker Spaniel. Yes. Um, yes, his name is, is Campbell. He's a rescue. He's doing okay. Um, you know, at, it at 16 depends, years old, he's doing on the fine. day, but yeah. thank goodness. We had a rescue know, dog too. Yeah. 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 There, there's nothing like them. They're great companions. And, uh, we've had, you know, a good 10 years together. So very fortunate. So what's a brand today that you would rather not live without in your life other than the one you're working on? Probably SoulCycle. You know, I'm very How many times much, a week? usually three. Good for you. Um, 
But I think did you, you listen know, to the Seth Solomon's podcast? I did. Yeah. I did. I just did Soul Cycle this weekend with a bunch of my buddies in oh, Dallas. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. You know, I did Soul Cycle in experience. Dallas, like you did, and I had Troy Aikman on the bike behind me. So I pedaled really well. Did I was you kick exhausted. His butt? Probably not. But I was very well aware of the fact I had Troy Aikman behind me. So that was a, a great soul cycle moment. Do you ever tuck your shirt in? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> and again, just to be clear, we're not against tucking. Okay. We are just in favor of untucking. Every body welcome and every yeah, habit welcome, right? Yeah, no, we're just in favor of untucking done well. Because it can be done not well, and we'd love to see it done well. But if you want to tuck, we're fully behind that. Um, but if you untuck, you should probably probably pay us a visit. Tell us one habit or ritual that works for you in immersing yourself in the digital space. Part of it is knocking on the doors of Facebook and Google and making sure you're on their radar screen, right? Um so you can get a lot of specialized attention if you are part of their disruptor groups, if you go visit their headquarters. So they have so many clients, but part of the trick is being on their radar, being in these groups so that you're involved in all the betas and you see things before so, anyone else great does. Advice. We did that at P&G years ago and they continue it today. Yeah. I mean, we were a big spender, but it, it's about showing up, being yeah. a human being, yeah. being part of tests, trials, yeah. get to yeah. other people. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing Shared like purpose, right? There's nothing like that person to person connection. There's a woman at at Beth uh, at Facebook named Beth Horn, and back when I was at Crate, you know, I knocked on her door. I said, "Beth, what can you do?" And she, you know, just showed us the way. And and again, uh, Untuck it. We're a member of this great disruptors group at Facebook, so we see things early, and they give us a lot of very individualized attention, which I think has been really helpful. Are you a listener of the CMO podcast? Absolutely. So, what's your favorite episode? You know, I, I really enjoy the one you just did uh, with Marissa Thalberg um, and and how she spoke about some of the things she did in her personal life. She talked a lot about, it really resonated, some of the things she talked about, uh, that dynamic tension and paradoxes, uh, because I've really found that dynamic tension to be such a thing with great brands. So I loved how she articulated it. And I think the arc of her career, and frankly, so many of the other folks on this uh, podcast has been really um, inspiring. Who would you like to see next? So I don't know him personally, but uh, Peter McGinnis at Chobani. Chobani is one of my absolute favorite brands. I don't think you've interviewed no, him. No, not yet. Um, and I just, you know, when you talk about brand purpose and you see what they have done, and again, because I went to Colgate in central New York and I'm steeped in, in you know, that environment and that economy, to have seen what they have done to reinvigorate the local economy and to see how they've treated their employees, it's just incredibly um, special. And every time I go in uh, to the grocery store to buy yogurt, I will, make, I will make the decision to buy Chobani just because I so appreciate what they have done for the community. And their stuff tastes great too, but uh, it's, it's really deeply personal and I think it's great and I would love to hear his lessons. Super, we'll do that. Okay, last question. What's one habit you want to share with our listeners that helps you stay fresh and creative and vital 
day to day? Yeah. Um, plug into startups. I think there are so many great executives and emerging executives who have a lot to give. Startups benefit from it tremendously. And what I find is, you know, in helping other people, I mean, that's just so rewarding. But when you're when you're trying to solve others' problems ostensibly, you end up, at least if your brain is wired like mine, solving other problems for your own business. And so I just think there's so many great entrepreneurs out there looking for mentors. And there's so many executives who would love, you know, they have great day jobs, but maybe they can't do all the things they want to do. So I'm trying to help make some of those connections. And I would encourage people to to try to do that. Um, That's a great side hustle. Yeah, it's really fun. Jenny, thank you. This has this, been so I loved terrific. It. I did as well. Thank you. Thanks for your generosity and the thoughts. It's yeah. Inspiring. Yeah. It's a great time. Thank you. That was my conversation with Jenny Olson. This was such a beautiful discussion. She has a remarkable career path, but what I really loved was her key mentor in her life is her dad. She was raised by a single dad, and she talked so poignantly about that and the influence he had on her life and her career. And by the way, his career was also in marketing. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.